Celeste and said, thank you so much for getting all those speeding tickets because your number's bigger than mine and it makes me look better. So, and I said, the true story of grace in there is Chandler, yeah. right? So I have a Starbucks gift card for Chandler <laughs> for being gracious to his wife with all of her speeding tickets and help for the, uh, that's great. And if he's not being gracious, then now he has to be, right? Now, now he has to be. So I have a funny speeding story that led to my arrest, which I will say for a later time, years ago. So uh, uh, being in handcuffs is not fun. So James used to be a police officer, right? So you were on the other end of that. So, all right. So, hey, we are in a series uh, on the Holy Spirit, and uh, we're in this series all summer. Uh, the Holy Spirit is such a forgotten part of who God is. We talk a lot about God the Father. We talk a, a lot about God the Son uh, in Jesus, but the Holy Spirit can be a little bit elusive. And so we said, you know, let's do a series over the summer that really just begins to dive into a lot of Scripture that helps us understand who the Holy Spirit is, what he does uh, in our lives, and what he's doing uh, in the world today. And so if you've been tracking with us, uh, you know that we've been in this since the beginning of summer. Our podcasts for both campuses are out there. So uh, if the things that we're talking about in this series uh, intrigue you in any way, then all of those uh, other sermons are out there, uh, and then you can get the ones for the rest of the summer uh, as well. So we started uh, in Newport News uh, really digging into this verse in 1 Corinthians 16.22. And this really for us became kind of a, a motivation for us for why we wanted to talk about the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting verse because here Paul writes, if anyone does not have does not love the Lord, that person's cursed, which means that they've condemned their life. They, they, they've, they're robbing themselves of the goodness that God wants to give them today uh, and that they are uh, uh, giving away the opportunity they have for a life e eternally with God in a place of paradise. That's why the vision statement of our church is heaven now, heaven forever. So that's what Paul means when he says a, a person is, is cursed, they're condemned. But then he writes this phrase, our Lord come. Now this is an interesting phrase because... In the Greek, depending on how you parse out these two words, so much of language, right, is two words that have been put together. And so in the Greek, it, depending on how you break this out, if you break it out the first way, that's two distinct words, and that when you put them together, it means our Lord comes. But, but if you were to break it out the second way, then those two words, when you put those two together, it means our Lord has come. And for centuries, there's been lots of conversation and debate. What did Paul mean when he wrote this? Was he making a statement that is trying to champion that Jesus has come, the Messiah has been here, that he has died for the sins of the world, and we make a vow of devotion to him? We, our lives can be reconciled to God? Or is he trying to remind us that Jesus is coming back? That there's a work that Jesus still is going to do that's not been done yet? And and we find that throughout the New Testament, this excitement and anticipation and expectation that Jesus is going to return. And I think that this is part of the genius of the language of the Bible, that the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write this word because he wanted to say both things. That we're not supposed to choose, that when we hear the word Maranatha, we're supposed to say Jesus has come 
and he's coming again. It's a word that has dual meaning because in our lives as devoted followers of Christ, we have been given a great and sacred responsibility by God to bring this message to the world. That people in the world, just like we have needed to know, and maybe some of you here this morning have not known, that Jesus came to die for the sins of the world so that you can be restored to your Father, and that one day Jesus is going to come back to take us to be with him for all eternity. During the worship set, during this part of the, the message, I felt like God dropped some things in my heart I want to share that, that, that you might not know this, but you have four birthdays. Did you know that? Some of you are really, all you party people are like, I, I hope this really turns out to four days of presents, right? How, how, many of, how many of you do the whole month of birthday thing? Anybody do that? What's your birthday month? May you raise your hand? You, like, there's something every day. May is saying we're going to start doing that. So Ryan's here, make a note, right? So like, I have friends that it's their birth month. So they do something special every day of the month of their birthday. Different people do different things to celebrate their birthday. But, but you really have four, right? Four births. So let's pretend like this is birthday one, this section right here. Your first birthday began at some point before the earth was created when God had a dream in his heart for you. That's your first birthday. Every person that's ever been born in this world was not born by accident. That God, the creator of the universe, with the same kind of intentionality, that's one of the reasons I believe that we're given such specific detail in the book of Genesis and the creation of the world because I think God wants to say to you, I did that same thing for your life. I, I've put such, such meaning and creative energy into the birth of every single person person. If we're not careful, we kind of get caught up into this idea that there's this mass of humanity that God kind of set it into motion, but then he kind of stepped back and, and then it just kind of took care of itself. But that's not the God that we read about in the Bible. The Bible says incredible things that God knows the number of hairs on all of our Now, some of us are making that easier for God than others. We're creating some, some memory space for him through our baldness. But, 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 but there's, there's great knowledge that God has for each of us. In Psalm 139, one of my favorite chapters in Psalms talks about this idea of there are books in heaven that, 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 that God has written a dream for our lives. It says that he knew us even before we were woven together in the wombs of our mothers. Your first birthday was the day that God dreamed a dream for you. If you're parents of kids, especially young kids, I hope you're putting that idea into their heart, that God's dreamed a dream for your life, that you have a purpose, that God put you here. If you miss that opportunity with your kids, then do it for them now as grown-ups and do it for your grandkids. We want our kids to grow up with this realization that God has a dream. That's my first birthday. All right, your second birthday, this will be the, the, this will be the second birthday section. You with me? All right, so here, this is your traditional birthday right here. This is the one that you all know about. This is the one that there was a, a day where there was a hospital or if, if you didn't make it there on the, on, the, on the side of the road in the taxi cab, right, whatever your birth story is, as crazy as it might be, or as normal as it might be, that there is a day and time that we associate with, right? Mine's March 9th of 1967. You know, I know that I'm getting older because when you have to put your age in some website for something that you're buying, I have to scroll down a lot farther now, right? Anybody have that feeling, right? Am I ever going to get to the 60s in this stinking scroll? I remember you, you, there's markers, right? Those of us that are old like me, I'm almost 50, where you begin to realize your age. I, one of the first times I realized that I, I began to feel older was when professional athletes started to look young to me, right? 
So then it shifted. The big shift was when the coaches of the teams start to look young to you. You, you with me, right? And now it's like police officers. I'm riding on the road. I'm thinking, I'm not sure that person is old enough to have a badge and a gun, right? I'm thinking, oh my goodness, right? I am an old man. So, so there's a birthday that all of us have, right? Who's the youngest person here? Who's my youngest person? Youngest person? Brian's raising his hand. There's delusional, right? There's delusional. Who's the youngest person here? Is it? Uh, how old are you? 12? 12. Anybody younger than 12? You are? <laughs> what? What? Oh, oh, I don't know. I don't know. All right, look, can we do this? Are, are we allowed to do this? Who's, who's the oldest person? Anybody willing to say? David, how old? <laughs> Linda pointed. Linda was like, it's him. How? 69. Anybody got 69 beat? No? All right. That's cool, isn't it? From 12 to 69. 12 birthdays celebrated, 69 birthdays celebrated. Think of all the birthdays that you've celebrated in your life and that you're going to celebrate, right? This is a part of our identity. This is part of understanding who we are. It's a part of our story. And so we celebrate this idea of, of God dreamed a dream for us. We celebrate the beginning of our, of our natural life, this idea of a, of a physical birth. Now, this section over here, let's call this one your John 3 birthday. Can we call it that? This section over here, this is where Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless a person be born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. Now Nicodemus says, that, that's, that's kind of a, a crazy thing to say, Jesus, because I've already been born. I'm not sure how can I be born a second time. And Jesus, in this incredible conversation with this man, Nicodemus, which is an incredible text for us, and the Gospel of John was a, a, a pivotal book for me in my 20s when I made a vow of devotion to Christ, beginning to read. I began to realize, right, I began to realize God had a dream for me, and that was my first birthday. And then I had my biological birthday, but as I began to look through the story of my life, I didn't yet have this birthday. And what's interesting is that these two birthdays have nothing to do with you choosing, right? We didn't get to pick whether or not God was going to have a dream for us. That's part of the sovereignty of God. We didn't get to pick what family we were going to be born in. We didn't get to, to pick what circumstance and situation that we were going to be born in, what nationality we were going to be born in. These two things are not of our choosing, but this one over here is absolutely up to our choosing. There has to be a place where we come to a decision and say, there's a third birthday that I've yet not experienced, and that one's up to me. Now, does it require the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives? It absolutely does, because the Bible says that no one can call Jesus Lord but by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I believe, by virtue of the fact that we're all here, by virtue of the fact that God dreamed a dream for you, by virtue of the fact that there was a, a, a sovereign moment where you were birthed into this world physically, that God has positioned you for this birthday and he's waiting for it. And the Holy Spirit is actively at work in every person's life on the planet to bring them to this birthday. Mine was in December of 1990. I was in my 1984 Honda Prelude, riding down Laburnum Avenue, just passing Eastgate Mall. And in that moment, I said, I don't really understand everything that this is going to require of me, but I believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that he died for my sins, that one day he's going to come back again, and that I should be living my life for him. And that's the day I took my first spiritual breath. There's so much celebration over this birthday, we forget that this birthday is so that this one can happen. 
God birthed us into this world so that we would have an opportunity to live for him forever. And that's this birthday. So let's think of maybe right here is your fourth birthday. The fourth birthday is the day that you leave this world. James' father had his final birthday this, this past year with my dad, had his final birthday, his fourth birthday. I, I like to say that we're not truly, truly born until we breathe our last. It's the day that we step into eternity. There, there, is a, there is a life that begins there for us. And that birthday is dependent upon this birthday. Whether or not in the moment where the Holy Spirit reveals Jesus to us, maybe like he's revealing Jesus to some of you today, that in a way that he never has before. That as you look back into the story of your life, you, you cannot find a moment where you made a vow of devotion to Christ. This birthday hasn't happened for you yet, and this birthday is waiting for that birthday. That all of us were born into this world with purpose. That all of us were born into this world because God has things for us to do. And even though the things that God has for us to do might vary from person to person, there is one thing that he asks of all of us, and that's a Maranatha calling. That we would find our own encounter with Christ and make our vow of devotion to him so that we could become a person that God sets loose into this world to help other people to learn the things that we're talking about today. There are people that you live next to. There are people that are in your family. They're strangers that God wants you to encounter, as we're going to see in some of the verses that we look at today. God wants to use you to help people see that there is a third birthday that's waiting for them, and that one is going to determine what their last one is. The Bible is very clear that when we leave this world, that based on whether or not we embrace Christ determines where we spend eternity. There's a place called paradise, which we understand to be heaven, and there's a place the Bible refers to as perdition. It's the place of hell and suffering. And the idea of suffering is an idea of being uh, uh, an eternity without God forever. And we want to be a church that helps people understand that, that this fourth birthday, it matters. And all of eternity is dependent upon it, which is connected to the choice that you might make. And some of you, you might need to make that choice today. That's what this idea of Maranatha is all about. When, when, when Paul says Maranatha, I think the Holy Spirit was inspiring him to say, the Lord has come and he's coming again. So make sure that you understand there is a moment of decision that you've got to come to in your life. You've got to make a choice about who Jesus is. That's what Jesus was telling Nicodemus. Unless a person is born again, their spiritual birth, their first spiritual breath, and they will not see the kingdom of heaven, their fourth birthday will not be the day that they enter into an eternity with him. All right, take me to, let me, I'm going to just push through some of these. I'm switching things up a little bit this morning. All right, let's do this. All right, so what I want to do with the rest of our time today, I want to talk about some of the ways that the Holy Spirit makes himself known to the world. And I think one of the reasons why he does some dramatic things is that sometimes we need some drama you with me? Sometimes we need some drama to wake us up to realize that this is serious. 
that sometimes the Holy Spirit does dramatic things because he's trying to get people's attention. And we did a baby dedication for a young family last night at the Newport News campus, the Bro family, and the verse I felt like God gave to me for their daughters in 1 Peter 1.8, which talks about this idea of, of people who be, believe without ever having to have walked with Christ in the flesh. And the, there's this unspeakable joy that, that fills those people. And I, I felt like God was saying that this young girl, that throughout her life, this was going to be part of her gift to the world, that her faith was going to inspire other people to have faith. I think that's part of this idea of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in dramatic ways is because God understands that, that, that we're, we're not encountering Jesus in a physical way like people in history did. You with me? We have to encounter him in a spiritual way, in a non-material way. And so the Holy Spirit steps into history and in moments and sometimes through our lives to do dramatic things to help us realize that Jesus is real and all of these things that we're talking about, there's a reality to them. Because we're born into a material world, it's hard to us to, to think about immaterial things. Does that make sense? It's hard for us because everything about our world is so tactile, things that we can touch and See, and we have math, and it makes sense, and it adds up. Or for some people, math doesn't make sense, and it adds up, right? But, but you know what I mean, that, that we're used to things being able to be quantified, and we, and we begin to read in Scripture, and this idea about eternity, and heaven, and hell, and Jesus, and salvation, and the spiritual breath, and we think, wow, that's, it's so hard to get our minds around that. And so sometimes the Holy Spirit steps into the world. He does some things that we can see. He does some things that we can experience so that we can be a person that says, hey, even though it's not real like this table is real it's probably more real because it's eternal all right so let me let's 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 look at some of these texts all right let's look at John 18 John 18 Since Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him so he stepped forward to meet them who are you looking for he asked Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. So, so a little context for you here. Jesus, the, the last supper has taken place, right? He's, he's had this last meal, the Passover meal, with the disciples. He's, he's, he's entering into the, the final hours of his life. Most, most Christian historians believe this is taking place on a Thursday night and that, that Jesus was crucified early Friday morning and that he rose from the dead early on a Sunday. So we're on a, we're on a Thursday night here. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying. Judas is missing. We know he's missing because he's betrayed Christ and he's leading the religious leaders to Jesus so that he can be arrested. So he says, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. And as Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and they fell to the ground. Now I always like to say when I read this story, if I had been part of the arresting party, that would have been my cue to go home. Are you with me? That, that when a person says, I am he, which is also a, a Jesus is, is connecting himself to God to the Father through the phrase of I am, right? When in the book of Exodus, when, when Moses said, who am I going to tell them who sent me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. There's some moments in Jesus' life where he connects himself that, that I'm God. And, and, and so here it is again. And when he says this thing, I am, there was such a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in that place that it caused, it caused everyone there to fall down, Right? So I'm thinking I'm getting myself up and saying, that's my cue to go home, right? There's, there's something about this man that's different from anyone else. There are times in our lives, I believe, where we can be in the presence of God in such a dramatic way, it, 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 it is as, as though as it, it overwhelms our physical body. 
Now, have we ever been in services, maybe if you've grown up in the church like I have, where we've seen that manufactured? Yeah, I think that I can, you know. It always irritates me in, in, in churches where it seems like the, the person that's praying for people, it's like they're giving them a little push. Hey, let's not, you don't need to manufacture what God wants to do in a real way, right? If God's spirit is going to overwhelm someone, let's let God do that on his own. He doesn't need our help. But, but there are times in our lives, and, and I hope part of today is going to give you an appetite for seeing some of the supernatural begin to maybe happen in your life because God sometimes wants to use you to do supernatural things in the world to help people realize that Jesus has a plan for their lives. Sometimes God uses us in simple ways. Simple ways. It's not complicated. I remember when, when I was just in that last uh, summer of running from God, sometimes God just, we just need to tire ourselves out. You with me? So I'm 23. I've been running hard from, from, from God my whole life. And, and I've, I've graduated from college and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm bartending, which my parents were so excited about that, that I was putting that college degree to work. And I was working as a bank teller during the day, and I was living at home, and I was trying to save money for graduate school, trying to decide what I was going to do. And, uh, and so there, I'm, I'm, I'm at my teller station, and I look up, and there's John Tal, who's a, been a lifelong friend of my, my parents. And, uh, and John Tal steps up, you know, to the teller window, and, and you know, there's protocol, right, in, in, in public settings like that. You don't talk about religion, right, in public, right? I'm, I'm here to take your deposit, right, or give you your, your balances. So just as in a, in a not over really loud, but in a, in, a, in a voice that other people could hear, John steps right up to the window and says, so Fred, are you still living your life for Jesus? I'm like, could I get your balance for you, Mr. Tao, right? Because I didn't want to answer that question because I wasn't living my life for Jesus, and, and it made me feel uncomfortable that he was asking me that in a public way, but I, looking back on my story, that was a moment where God began to get my attention. I think John Tal, being a man of God that he was, when he came in, he didn't know that I worked there. I think as soon as he's, wait, right, he's snaking his way through the line right, to get to the front, it, there's a whole bunch of tellers, right? And I'm thinking, John's thinking, God, you need to put me in front of that young man. Work this out so that I'm going to end up at his window, which he did. And I think the whole time he was up there, he was praying for me. I think the whole time he was up there, he was asking God to give him what he was supposed to say when he got there. And that summer and, and that conversation began part of my journey back to making a decision for Christ, which happened in December of that year. Now, now there are moments in our lives where God wants to use us just in simple ways like that. Does it require us sometimes to be willing to be conspicuous? Yes, it does. But sometimes God needs us to be willing to be conspicuous so the journey to someone's third birthday can happen. My third birthday happened in December in part because of that conversation, because John being willing to be used by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes he wants to use us in simple ways, and then sometimes he wants to use us in dramatic ways. And as we begin to move forward in this life of a vow of devotion to Christ, a disciple of Christ, there should be an expectation that we have that the God of this book is the God of my present day. The God of this book is the God of my present day. And he does some unexplainable, incredible things in this book. And I believe that God still wants to do unexplainable, incredible things in our lives. There's times where I can remember in my own journey... It hasn't happened a lot, but there have been times where I'm just worshiping and, and, and I just, I feel God's presence in such a profound way. I'm thinking if I don't kneel right now, right, I, I, I might not be able to stand. 
When, when we think about the power of who God is, we should not be surprised that it's overwhelming. When we think about his goodness, when we think about his love, when we think about his greatness, we think about times maybe in our past where he's rescued us from physical circumstances or maybe circumstances that are maybe on the inside where we've been facing temptation and we feel like God has set us free from that moment. We should not be surprised by the fact that his power can overwhelm us. All right, let's look at the next one. Let's look at Acts 10, Acts 10, 44 to 46. Even as Peter was saying these things, all right, so we've moved forward in time, right? So in John 18, this is the moment of Jesus' betrayal. We move through Passover. Jesus has died. He's raised himself from the dead. There's 40 days. There's 40 days of him uh, having what's called post-resurrection encounters. He's revealing himself to people in his resurrected body. Then there was a a 10-day waiting period uh, where the disciples were gathered in what's called the upper room. And we're going to get more into that next week. It won't be here. So you have to get it in the podcast where we really dig into Acts 1 and, and 2. And so that happens. The church is birthed. The Holy Spirit is released into the world. And then now they're going out and beginning to tell the world about who Jesus is and the power and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so a man by the name of Cornelius, who was a Roman officer, he invites Peter to come and share the gospel with his family. And even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. Now let me pause there. One of the fascinating things about Pentecost is that it removed exclusivity of the Holy Spirit from the world. You see, John the Baptist was an amazing evangelist, but he didn't have a supernatural ministry, but Jesus did. You with me? It was to set them apart. That John the Baptist was the forerunner, Jesus was the son of God, and there was a supernatural ministry that came through Christ. And early in Jesus' ministry, he's the only one, right? He's the only one that you see performing miracles. He's the only one that you see him moving in supernatural ways. But there's a moment where he prays for the disciples, right? And there's an impartation of the Spirit by way of a measure, not completely yet, which that's another sermon for another time. But then God God begins to use them in supernatural ways. Then you get to Luke 10, and it goes from 12 to 72, right? There's 72 people that are sent out. But what happens when you get to the book of Acts is that it's no longer exclusive. It's for everybody who's willing. It, you, you see these stories in the, in, in the book of Acts and forward where it says, and everyone was filled with the Spirit. The idea, idea being now that everyone is now a candidate for the working of the supernatural in their lives if they've made a vow of devotion to Christ. The Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening. Exclusivity is gone. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, right? Because early on, the Jewish believers, they thought that you had to convert to Judaism before you could be a true follower of Christ. And Paul helps us understand that that's not the case. For they heard them speaking in other tongues or spiritual language. I'm going to focus on that next week. And again, you can get that for the podcast. But then the last part of this is and praising God. I love the last part of that verse. So many people, they they treat this verse as if the the emphasis is on the spiritual language, but it's not just on the spiritual language. It's this idea of impassioned worship. That, That one of the works in the ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives is a worship experience like we share today. 
a worship experience like we shared at our Newport News campus. The, the reason why we worship the way we do, it's not because we're trying to be contemporary. It's not because we're trying to, to, to modernize our worship experience. We worship the way that we do because we believe that the Holy Spirit inspires in us a passion and an enthusiasm for who God is. That when we think about his goodness, when we think about his greatness, like we've already said today, his mercy, his love, the fact that he's dreamed a dream for all of us, that should begin to stir in us feelings of affection. That, that should begin to cause something inside of us to say, God is amazing. And then we take the words that these gifted, gifted artists have created, these incredible lyrics, and we borrow those words to help express the feelings that we have for God. We're expressive and impassioned in our worship because when we read in God's word in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, especially in the book of Psalms, there is a rambunctiousness to the worship that we read about in the Bible. Are there, are there examples of quiet reflection in the Bible for praise and worship? There are, there are, but can I tell you by way of volume, they are the exception. When you take the book of Psalms and parse it out, and take all the ones that were really intended for worship. The vast majority of all of those psalms, there were, there's dancing and musical instruments. There's a, there, there's a, there, you, you get the impression that they were making some noise when they worshiped together. It's fascinating, isn't it, that when the Israelites entered into the promised land for the very first time, it was through worship that the first city fell. Through worship. That the first city fell. That's God saying to us that, hey, there is a stirring and a working and a power of the Holy Spirit that gets awakened in us when we step into a moment of praise. So here's Cornelius. He thinks he's, being, he's inviting Peter to come and instruct them. And what he doesn't understand that through that instruction, through the revelation of the word of God, something supernatural takes place that there is a birthing of the Holy Spirit in them, that all of the people on that day make their vow of devotion to Christ and take their first spiritual breath. And then immediately following that, there's an Acts chapter 2 encounter where they're baptized in the Holy Spirit, which is this idea of we don't get more of God, but he gets more of us. And then there's spiritual language, and then there's celebration. There's this, this great moment of expression. I think one of the reasons why God calls the church to that kind of expressive worship is because people are desperate for feeling when it comes to God. I think our world is filled with people that are hoping that God's not just some academic endeavor. I think our world is filled with people who are saying, I, I, I hope this idea of being Christian is more than just doctrine. Does doctrine matter? Yes, it does. But when they asked Jesus about great commandments, the first one he said was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The mind's an important part of it, but it's just one of four. Heart's in there. Feeling matters. We talked last night in Newport News that sometimes I think people say, well, well Fred, it just seems like that worship is it's, it's just a lot of emotion. And my answer to that is you better believe that it is, right? Because emotion is a wonderful thing. I don't want to imagine my life as a husband without emotion and feeling. I, I don't want to think about being a father without emotion and feeling. God created us with a capacity for emotion and feeling, for love and, and gratitude and celebration. This is a great gift that God has given to us. Do, do some people's personalities lend themselves to 
feeling more than others? Yes, it does. But for all of us, no matter what our personality is, there is supposed to be a river of emotion, right? For, for some of you, it's a waterfall. For others, it, it might be a stream, but it should be present. And it should absolutely be present in our times of worship. And I believe that when people come in from the outside, that one of the things that, that our church and other churches like ours, the gift that we give is that, hey, there is a love relationship that we have with God. And in worship like this, it's one of the ways of us just standing in front of him and giving him a hug, celebrating who he is, our hearts being stirred. And I think it causes people to leave and say, I don't understand everything that that's about, but I want what those people have. I want what those people have. I grew up in the Episcopal Church, and, and uh, I remember years ago that as my, uh, my family experienced the, the working of the Holy Spirit through the Episcopal Church, and, and they were called Faith Alive Weekends. Teams of people traveled around in the 70s to Episcopal churches in the state of Virginia and taught on the Holy Spirit, much of what we're teaching today. And I, my, my parents became a part of a team, and I remember as a young boy with my sister, we'd get in the back of the station wagon, right, traveling all over. There's no seat belts back then, right, because you're not driving more than 40 miles an hour, right? We're climbing around, playing, and we spent our weekends every Every weekend in all these little churches all throughout Virginia, and my parents part of a team of people trying to help people see that the work of the Holy Spirit is for today. And, and I remember there was a, a, a lady who, who visited our church in Verina. It's a little community I grew up in just outside of Richmond. And, uh, and, and I remember uh, this lady coming to one of those meetings, and, and their family became lifelong friends with our family. And, and, and I remember her coming up to, to my parents and saying, I really don't understand anything that you're talking about. But I want it in my life because I see that it's real. And I'm telling you, this is part of the calling that you and I, this is the idea of a Maranatha calling. It's God to use us to help people understand in their heart. It might take time for our minds to catch up, but to understand in their heart that there are four birthdays that all of heaven is longing for us to have. And the first two have happened for all of us, and the next two all of heaven is waiting anxiously for those for us. And God wants to use us to make it happen. Just like he did using Peter for Cornelius. If God were to write another Bible, which he's not. But if he were, he's hoping that there's going to be a story that your name is in here. That your name. That a Cornelius is going to be your neighbor. A Cornelius is going to be your co-worker. And, and, and so whatever your name is, you put your name in here for Peter, that, that so-and-so is going to invite you to come to them and say, tell us what this Jesus thing is all about. These stories are given to us not just to teach us the history of Christianity, but to give us a vision for the Christianity that we're supposed to be living out today in this life. 2 Corinthians 12, 1 through 6. This boasting will do no good, but I must go on. I love this part with Paul. Now, now this is the New Living Translation. Your Bible might render this as Paul talking about someone else. And in the Greek, it literally is Paul uh, talking about himself. But I agree that there, the, the, if you're going to translate this in a way for us to understand it, that Paul's really referring to himself in this story. And so that's how the New Living Translation picks it up. 
I will reluctantly talk about visions and revelations from the Lord. He says, I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside of my body. And he goes on to say that as he was caught up to paradise, he heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. Things no human is allowed to tell. And you can continue to reading on if you know this is the, the famous text too where Paul talks about a, a thorn was, was given in his flesh to keep him humble. And, and that's the great text that we end up where we say that God's answer to Paul when he prayed for it to be taken from him. God said to him, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so many of us are familiar with that part of the text because that's the part of the text that's kind of famous. And so that's the part that gets talked about. But before that, we read about some incredible things that Paul is saying to us that in our times of of worship and in our times of prayer that, that there can be moments where God reveals things to us, where he speaks to us, where, where we have an encounter with him and in that moment we kind of forget that we're a part of this natural world. I've had moments like that in my life. I hope that you have moments like that in your life where you're just lost in a place of worship and it feels as though you're in the heavenlies. It just, it feels as though that, that I know that I'm in this world, but right now I feel like I'm in another place with my God. And he speaks to us. He talks to us. He reveals things to us. He talks to us about our, our, our plans. Now, I've ever heard God's audible voice. I never have. I, I, some people do, and, and, and I take them at their word. But I, I like to say I feel his voice. Does that make sense? That I, I feel his voice in my heart. And we want to be a church that talks to people about verses like this because we want to say God wants to do this for you. He wants to talk to you. He, he wants to engage you in ways that when you open your eyes and go back to doing the laundry or cutting the grass, that you think to yourself, wow, that was incredible. God wants to reveal himself to us in profoundly supernatural ways because of the gift of faith that it is for us and so that we also have the faith that we need to go out into the world and to be used by him to tell others about Jesus and these birthdays. All right, I got three more. We got time. You ready for three more? All right. I say that all the time, not like I'm giving you a choice, right? Oh, I love this one here in Acts 8. 39 says, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north in the town of Azotus, and he preached the good news there, and in every town along the way, along the way meaning from after he left there and traveled back to Caesarea. So if you're familiar with this text, you know that Philip was, was on a road, he's walking, uh, he's been inspired by the Holy Spirit to go to a place, and, and he's walking along, and, and there's a, a wealthy Ethiopian eunuch that's being carried in some type of transport, and he has this scroll of the book of Isaiah, and, and, so, and so he's reading it, and, and Philip gets up into, in, into this, this, this vehicle of sorts with him, and begins to explain to him that Isaiah talking about the Messiah, that the Messiah has come, and that's Jesus. And so, so again, this story is this idea that God wants to use you in that way, that, that, that you're going to have encounters with people, and they're going to have questions for you, and God's going to give you some of the answers, maybe supernaturally in the moment, but part of it is because you've been faithful and, and being a part of church and learning that you're going to be prepared for some of those conversations. And so the eunuch says to Philip, hey, I want 
want to make a vow of devotion to this man, Jesus, and I want to be baptized. And so they're in this desert. They find a puddle of water. They climb out. And just the fact that this person of royalty is even willing to get in the unclean water is an amazing part of the story. So they go into the water. Philip baptizes this Ethiopian eunuch, and it says that in that moment, Philip disappears. Gone. Star Trek, right there in the Bible. Teleported, and Philip wakes up in Azotus. Boop, I'm here, which is hundreds of miles away, right? And I love how the Bible just picks up with Philip as if that was just some everyday occurrence for Philip. You would think that the Bible would say, and Philip began to go around and tell the city about how God moved him supernaturally from one place to the next. I love this story because it is as if Philip says, well, of course that's what God did. Because the God that I know in the scriptures is the God of today. I didn't get excited, Philip. Do I think Philip told the story? I think he did, but that wasn't the emphasis of the text. The emphasis of the text, that there was an expectation that Philip had that God was going to do unexplainable things. And I love how this unexplainable thing that God did in Philip's life, that it motivated him all the more to preach the good news in the place where he found himself. The very first thing that he began to do was tell the people of that city about Jesus. And then it says at some point, God led him back to Caesarea and then in every town that he stopped at along the way that he began to tell people about Christ. This idea of birthdays, I'm telling you, it matters. If I could boil this life experience down to one thing that matters, it matters about these birthdays. Understanding that God has a dream for you, that you were birthed into this world physically so that you could come to your place of decision for Christ because your fourth birthday, one day, all of that moment, whether or not you're going to spend an eternity with God or spend an eternity apart from his, it depended on the choice that you made on that day. And all of these people in the first century want everybody that they know to understand that Jesus has come and that he's coming again, that eternity matters and it's waiting for the decision of our first spiritual birth. Now, I've experienced most of all the things that we've talked about today, but I've not experienced this one in part of my prayer in this just one time, God. Come on, right? Just, I want to do teleportation just one time, right? Just, just, just one time in my life. Could it be that, that, that I'm in Target and the next thing I'm standing in Walmart? It doesn't have to be cities, God. It could just be, right, from Bass Pro Shop to Dick's Sporting Goods. I'm okay, right? I'm okay with that. Maybe it's going to happen when I do my big 50th birthday bear hunt in Alaska with, with Dan. Dan's going to be calling Vanessa. He was in the raft, and I don't know where he is now. But there's strange reports of an evangelist in Anchorage preaching the gospel. We think it may be him, right? Okay, maybe. Could be. Okay. All right. Acts 13. We got time. We, got, we want to do two more. Acts 13, 8 through 12. But Elymas the sorcerer, and in the Greek, Elymas means the sorcerer, interfered and urged the governor to pay no attention to what Barnabas and Saul said. He was trying to keep the governor from believing. Saul, also known as Paul, was, here we go, filled with the Holy Spirit. And he looked the sorcerer in the eye, and then he said, You son of the devil, full of every sort of deceit and fraud, an enemy of all things that's good, right? That's what we don't want someone to say to us when we come visit a church, right? Will you never stop perverting the true ways of the Lord? Watch now, for the Lord has laid his hand of punishment upon you, and you will be struck blind. 
and you will not see sunlight for some time. Instantly, a mist and a darkness came over the man's eyes, and he began groping around, begging for someone to take his hand to lead him. I love verse 12. When the governor saw what had happened, he became a believer in Christ, right? Well, of course he did, right? For he was astonished at the teachings about the Lord. See, sometimes there are supernatural moments that need to happen for the understanding of the teaching to take root in our heart. See, in this moment, there's a demonstration of power. Now, part of the demonstration of power, I think, was to get Elymas' attention to help him understand that there are consequences to, to lead people away from Jesus, right? It's one thing for you and I to reject the revelation of Christ being the son of the living God. It's something else for, other, for us to lead other people away from that. Elymas is a person who's rejected Christ, and he wants everyone else to reject Christ. And so part of this moment of prophetic power is to get his attention, but it was also to get the attention of the other people in the room. There was a demonstration of power which quickened an awakening of faith and that faith enabled them to receive the message of the gospel. Now, this idea of prophetic power, I, I, I reference it that way because different people teach this text in different ways. I'm not saying that mine's right. I'm just saying that, that, that mine is one of many interpretations. So I'm just going to give you mine. You can decide whether or not what you believe happened here. Some people teach and believe that Paul had a power that God had given to him to, 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 to cause him to be blind. Now, I, I don't believe that. I don't feel like that really reconciles with the rest of Scripture. What I think happened here, because even how how it's given to us in the text is it said God's hand is about ready to rest upon him. I believe God gave Paul in that moment prophetic insight what God was about to do to Elymas. Does that make sense, the difference? For Paul to do it to him versus Paul saying God's about to do this to you. Does that, those are two different things. That's, how, that's what I believe happened here. That's why I, I render this as a moment of prophetic power. It wasn't his power, it was God's power and, that, and that, that God had given him a prophetic insight about what was to happen. And I believe this is part of our own journey in this life. I believe as we get to the next one in special knowledge that there are moments in time where God wants to reveal something to us that we could not have known through our natural understanding and in our natural mind. And sometimes it's a moment of prophetic power like that to get people's attention so faith can be stirred or so people can be warned. But then there are other times where maybe it's not so dramatic. It's an insight that's softer that rescues and that brings us to our last one. 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 8. Some of you here today, and you're like, I didn't know any of this was in the Bible. I know. This is amazing stuff. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of all of them. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us, each of us so we can help others. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. Hey, before I tell you this story, I'll, I'll tell you another story. So yesterday yesterday morning when I, I got up a little early, I needed to do, to do some work on my car. I, I'm realizing I'm, I'm, I'm finding a newfound motivation to do some things with my, my car because with my dad's passing in November, uh, some of my favorite memories with him, uh, it was with working on the car. That's how I learned tools, by just being under there with him, right? Handing him tools and him saying, no, that's not the right one. And then I, right, I have to hand him a, a, another one. And, and so I'm realizing that, that, that I'm, I feel close to my dad when I'm doing that again, even though he's 
not here because we shared that memory. And so I also know that my dad taught me a lot of those great things, and I need to get busy teaching my boys those things too. So right, so I'm buying the stuff that I need to teach them how to change the oil and change the tire. And you might be thinking, well, what about Claire? And if you know Claire, you already know she's not interested in learning about those things. So make sure you're teaching your sons about how to do those things like I'm doing mine. So all right, so, 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 so I'm, I'm, I'm working on, I've got to change the power steering fluid in my car. And so I've been watching YouTube and talking to a friend who's a, a mechanic. And so I've got my turkey baster because if you've ever changed your power steering fluid, right? A turkey baster is a great way to suck some of the power steering fluid out of the, the reservoir. And so I called Vanessa on Friday and said, hey, do you have a turkey baster? I need to use it to do some work on the car. But, but it, can't, it can never be a turkey baster again, right? Because it's going to get used. And she's like, ah, and I've never used it. And so, so you can have it. And so I get out there and I, I start sucking all the power steering fluid out of the, out of the reservoir. And what what I realize is that the, 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 the opening for my power steering fluid reservoir narrows and the turkey baster won't get all the way down in there. And so I've only got about half of the fluid out, right? So I have this moment where I think to myself, surely this is good enough, right? Surely, if I just get half of it out, that's okay. But I realize in that moment, it's, it's not okay, right? I, I shouldn't do it halfway. And I can hear my, my dad's because there was nothing halfway about my dad. My dad always said, take the time to get the right tool, right? Don't do a job halfway. If you're going to do it, do it the right way, right? And so I'm, yes, dad, or I'm having a conversation with myself, even though I'm 50, I'm four all over again, right? And so, so I think to myself, how on earth am I going to get this power steering fluid out? And all of a sudden I have this idea. I have this, this, this leftover hose from another project that I did in the kitchen. It's just clear plastic tube. And I'm thinking to myself, I remember when I was a kid, right? And all of you remember when you were a kid, when someone taught you that when you're drinking your soda, if you stick your tongue on the end of the straw and you take the straw, the, right, the Coke won't fall out. Some of you remember the first time you did that. You think this is magic, right? No, it's, it's science. And, and so, so I go get this tube, right? So I stick the tube down in the reservoir, I'm standing there with a hose on the other side of my mouth, right? People are walking their dogs and they're thinking, wow, this pastor, he's had a rough day. Don't know what he's drinking, but it's some type of fluid from his car. And so I begin to draw it out. And now this is a clear tube and I'm paying attention, right? Because I know that this thing's sinking up. At some point I've got to stop. And so sure enough, I stick my tongue into the hose, stick in the mason jar, it all drains out. And I was able to get all of the power stuff. I was very proud of myself, right? To get, and, it, and it, it worked. It did not ultimately fix my car, but I felt like I had done something, right? At the end of the day. And so I, I'm telling you that story. I'm telling you that story. And I'm going to tell you one more that is related to this text. Because if you're not careful, you'll live your life as a Christian saying, good enough is good enough. And what we're saying is, don't do that. Don't, don't, don't stop halfway. When you take your first spiritual breath and make a vow of devotion to Christ, you can slip into a mindset that says, eternity is now mine. And I believe that. If you're sincere when you make that vow of devotion to Christ, one day when you breathe your last and it's time for your fourth birthday, you're going to step into eternity to be with God. But stepping into that moment of eternity is also about celebrating the life that you live between the moment you took your first spiritual breath and that moment you breathed your way into eternity. And I think what God is saying to us through a lot of these texts is don't stop short. Believe God for great and amazing things in your life. Be praying for your kids that God's going to use your children in great and amazing ways. Have a prayer that says, God, I want the God that I read about in this book to be the God that I encounter in this life. I don't want good enough to just be good enough. We talked about it last week. I think mediocrity is the greatest temptation that Christians will face in this life. Just settling for less. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 8. 
To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. So back in 1999, I crossed over from a, a secular job. I had ended up leaving bartending and went to work for the Christian Children's Fund and ended up in a, a call center corporate setting for about a decade, about 10 years or so, and, and was actively involved just as a volunteer in the church, Mechanicsville Christian Center, where we, we ended up being, I was there for 17 years before we came here. In the last eight of that, I was on staff and that I, my first pastoral role was with that church and part of their pastoral team. And, and I remember one of the, during the early years of being a pastor there, it was a large church. It was some 1,500 people and a big staff. And so we had what was called the POD, the pastor of the day. And so that every day during the week and through the weekend, we would take turns on a rotation that whatever pastor calls would come in by way of an emergency or crisis or hospital visits that needed to be done. We took turns rotating through that. And so I was the pastor of the day on this particular day. And my phone rings. I answer it, and the receptionist says, hey, I've got someone on the line. They won't give me their name, but they want to speak to a pastor. So they sent it in. So I said, hey, this is Pastor Fred. How can I help you? And the, the very first, very first thing this woman says is, could you tell me if, if, if a person commits suicide, will they go to heaven? Right? Now, in that moment, I know that this is an important conversation. Because you and I both know that she's not asking for someone else. She's asking for herself, right? So I just, I'm praying, God, help me in this moment. Say what I need to say to this woman. Because I know that when she hangs up this phone, she might be stepping into eternity for the very first time. And, it, and it's probably not her time if it's coming by her hand. And so I'm talking with her, and I'm trying to keep her on the phone as long as I can. And every now and then I'm trying to get her to, would you give me your name? Or would you be willing to tell me where you are? Or we'd love to meet you somewhere and talk. But she won't, she'd get nothing, right? Not giving me anything. I have not a name, just nothing. And so we have this great conversation about you have purpose. And I begin to talk to her about this idea that you're here because God's dreamed a dream for your life. I'm trying to to, you know, to jumpstart. You think about like in the ER when they put the paddles on your heart. I'm trying to put the paddles on her spiritual heart to kind of get her, her, her hope heartbeat coming back. And, and, uh, and so at the end of the conversation, she lets me pray for her. But that's all. That's, that's all. I, I kid you not, as soon as I hung up that phone, God speaks to my heart who this person is. Who this, just gives me the name of this person. And I think to myself, that's crazy. But, but I know, right? I've been walking with God long enough to recognize his voice. And I knew that that's who this woman was. And so I go out to the receptionist and I knew this girl's family. She was an adult woman. And her family went to our church, but she didn't. I said, I want you to call Roger and Linda. And I want you to get their daughter's number for me and tell them it's an emergency. And so I knew Roger and Linda super well. And so they call Roger and Linda and, uh, and they get her their, their daughter's phone number. And so I pick up the phone and I call this woman back. And she answers the phone. And, uh, and I say, hey, this is Pastor Fred. We just had a conversation with each other. And she just began to weep and cry because she knew, right, that something supernatural had happened on that day to save her life. Now, that's the only time in my life something that dramatic like that with something of a special knowledge has happened. And if I live out the rest of my days to be 100 years old and that's the only time that's ever, ever happened to me, once was enough. Once was enough. Because that next week, she's in church and, and rededicates her life to Christ. And we were able to get her connected with some resources and some counseling. And she was, was, was willing to stop self-medicating, get on the kind of medication that she needed to to manage her depression. And I don't know where she is today, but I know for those last several years that we were at that church that she began to thrive again. Why? Because God did something dramatic in her life that we cannot explain. 
And I had the privilege of being a part of that story. And I'm finishing with that one today because what we're trying to say as a church, have an appetite and believe that God wants to use you in ways just like that. Stand with me as we pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that you gave to us. Father, we thank you for, 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 for men and maybe even some women that you used in the creation of these uh, last 27 books that got added into the Bible that we call sacred scripture today. We, 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 th- we thank you, God. We, we thank you, God, that you put something in print so that we would know about things that happened hundreds of years before we walked upon this earth to reveal to us who you are and the kind of life that we're supposed to live. Do we live in a different culture? Sure we do. Do do we live in a world, Father, where there are are countries and cities and places that existed now that didn't exist then? Is there technology and advancement? Yes, but at the end of the day, God, what we know from reading your word that even if, Jesus, you don't come back for another 10,000 years, there's some things about this world that are never going to change, and that's that all of us have four birthdays. And may it be, God, that we would leave here today saying to you, Father, use me however you want to use me. Forgive me for my reluctance and my unwillingness in the past, but but use me, God. Use me, God, to tell the world about Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. And everybody said together, amen. We'll see you next week. There is